0: Akiku Kondu wakes up every day to the sound of his wife's voice. She calls him from across the room in her high-pitched, girlish, sing-song voice. She dances and swirls around, urging him to get out of bed. At the same time, he's holding her in his arms on the bottom tier of their metal-framed bunk bed. And if he were more awake... He could be watching an illustrated cartoon of her singing on YouTube. This is because Akiku's wife is an idea. An anime character called Miku. The couple had a ceremony that Akiku regards as a wedding in November of last year, uh, back in 2018. It wasn't official, but it was pretty well attended with 39 guests. Akiku says... Now, there are two reasons why I had a wedding publicly. The first one is to prove my love to Miku. The second one is there are many young otaku people. That's people who are obsessed with video games and anime. There are many otaku people like me falling in love with anime characters. I want to show the world that I support them. So reads part of an article titled, Why I Married a Cartoon Character, which was published by the BBC back in 2019. Uh, the story is not unique. You can find many like it with a simple Google search. And it might, it might not even be the most bizarre. I also found articles detailing how people married trees, themselves, and pets. What's clear from all of these stories, is that there exists both great confusion about what marriage is within our culture, as well as a great corruption of it. So this morning, as we turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 22 through 33, our hope is to clear away some of that confusion so that we might rightly understand and embrace the Bible's teaching about marriage. Today, our goal is to define what marriage is and what marriage is for. I've tried to summarize it this way. This is the main idea to say marriage is a gospel drama. Hopefully that'll become clearer to you by the time we're done together this morning. Marriage is a gospel drama. And I want to exhort you to focus on Christ. Focus on Christ. You see your outline there before you. There are just two parts and two points this morning. Marriage was created by God. and Marriage pictures the relationship between Jesus and the church. The first point is far larger than the second point, um, And you will learn why as we walk through um, these sections of the Bible together this morning. Let's pray. Father, what we have not give us, What we know not teach us, and what we are not, make us. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be covering this section over the next few weeks. And because what we're going to do is a little different, we're going to start at the back end of the section, kind of Paul's conclusion today is what we're going to talk about. Then next week we're going to speak about husbands in marriage before wrapping this little pericope up by speaking about wives in marriage. And so we're going to pulp fiction it and work backwards through the text. And I think Because we are doing that, it's crucial that we keep uh, the context of Paul's argument in Ephesians at large in our minds, as well as his argument in this section. So we've summarized Ephesians by saying that it's easily broken into two halves, doctrine and devotion. The first three chapters, doctrine, teach us that God has chosen to adopt into his one family all who believe in Jesus we who believe were dead without hope and God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That's, that's the doctrine. And then the second three chapters, four through six, are about devotion. They teach us not how to become Christians, but how to live now that we are Christians. Christians. The the idea is this. We who believe have been adopted into the family of God, doctrine, and now we're learning to live up to the family name, devotion. We who are in Christ have been born again, doctrine, and now we're learning to walk in love like our elder brother Jesus, imitating God as his beloved children, devotion. Pick this word walk intentionally because it is scattered throughout Ephesians a number of times. And the first time it shows up is back in chapter two when we are told that that when we are dead, we're actually the living dead. And we walk, it's a Hebrew idiom for for live. We walk, we, we live following the course of the world. We were disciples of the devil. And then in chapter 2, after we read that section about how God has raised us from the dead to live with Christ and in Christ, we're told that God has prepared for us good works that we might walk in them. Then we see at the beginning of chapter 4 that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Next, we're told in verse 17 to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as the world does, as those who do not know God. We're not to live that way anymore. We're to live different. We're to not walk like they do because they are darkened in their understanding. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And because we have the Holy Spirit now, we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We take off the old self, put on the new self. But we're not to walk like the Gentiles walk. Rather, we are to walk in the new way. And what's that way? We are to walk in love as Christ loved us. That's chapter 5, verse 2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Then we see in verse 8 of chapter 5 that Because we were at one time darkness, not in darkness, but we were darkness, and now we are light, not in light, but we are light in the Lord. Therefore, we are to walk as children of the light. That's the message of Ephesians. Be what you are. What you are has been changed, and now your life is going to be changed. You've been given a new identity, and now you are going to have new actions, walk as children of the light. And that brings us to verse 15, which kind of kicks off uh, the, the final part of the book. Uh, this command, uh, walk, not as unwise, but as wise, is draped over this final section. It's all about how to live wisely in light of the coming day of the Lord, And so we're told not to walk as unwise, but as wise. And then we have two uh, immediate explanatory commands that hang underneath that. The first is in verse 17. We're told to understand what the will of the Lord is. Uh, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is what it means to walk wisely. Secondly, we're told don't be drunk with wine that is controlled by a substance, but rather be filled, controlled by the Spirit. So we want to walk wise. You want to be filled with the Spirit. And we talked about how the Holy Spirit has an assuring work that he does in us, you know, he's sealed our salvation in Christ, and he has a maturing work that he does in us. He helps us to become and practice what we've been declared in Christ. And we always want to be clear, there is a difference between justification and sanctification. In justification, because of our faith in Christ, God looks at us and he says, you are right with me. He declares us Righteous. He declares us holy. But practically speaking, we are not holy yet. Now, 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 justification, that's all of God's work. That's all of Jesus' work. He's accomplished it by His death on the cross in our place for our sins. He does all the work. We do all the sinning. He does all the saving. But, but in, in sanctification, we've been given the Holy Spirit, the engine of the Christian life. He animates our Christian lives. And, and now we cooperate with God, the Holy Spirit, as we become what we are. We've been adopted into God's family. And so now we are learning to live up to the family name. We've been declared holy, declared righteous. And so now we're, we're becoming in practice what we've been declared by God. We're becoming what we are. And the Holy Spirit helps us to do that. And so because we have the Spirit, Paul tells us we wanna live in such a way that evidences that we have the Spirit. And so he says to show that you are full of the Spirit, if you want to be controlled by the Spirit that you have that indwells you. Well, then you need to pursue that control. You need to pursue that fullness of the Spirit by doing the following things. And he he outlines three things for us, which we looked at last week. So, singing to one another. And the context here is corporate worship. He says, "This is what Spirit-filled people do. You want to pursue the fullness of the Spirit through singing to God and to one another, uh, vertically and horizontally, making melody to the Lord with your heart." Now, you know, singing, right? And then we said, giving thanks always to God for everything, giving thanks together. And lastly, we said, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, having that Philippians 2 DNA down in us, that we would give ourselves up for the good of one another, that we would consider one another's interests ahead of our own, that we would function as contributors to the body of Christ here, working to the end of building this body up in love. We'd focus, work as contributors rather than consumers. And so now we come to the, the section that, that Paul is going to elaborate a little bit here. He's going to talk about spirit-filled living in the context of the home. He's going to talk about marriage, family, and then work. Now, this next few weeks, we're going to focus on on marriage, but I do want to show you, he's, he's clarifying, he said, when I say serve one another in love, when I say submit to one another, I'm not obviating or eliminating these normal relationships of authority and submission. These are natural and good. And so he's going to go on. He's going to ask husbands to lead their wives well, and he's going to ask wives to submit to their husbands. He's going to ask children to submit to their parents, and he's going to encourage the parents to care well for their children. And he's going to tell employees to submit to their employers. He's going to tell employers to care well for their employees, He's saying that Jesus is the example for how we are to function in positions of authority and in positions of submission. And so we're starting with that first one, and we see that Paul calls wives to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. He tells the husbands to love their wives, laying their lives down for them as Christ did for the church. We see that the relationship between Jesus and the church is the pattern for how husbands and wives should relate to one another in marriage. That, that brings up Paul's conclusion in verse 33. He says, basically, in conclusion, the end of the matter is this, right, right? Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so Paul's argument pushes us in this direction. And what we're able to learn from the passage, what he he wants us to see, is that the end of marriage is Christ. That marriage was created to glorify God by picturing the gospel. That marriage is a gospel drama. Paul wants us to understand that human marriage directs our attention, not to itself, but to the marriage between Christ and the church. Now, before we get there and tease that out a little bit more, we need to recognize that foundational to Paul's argument here are the assumptions that he has derived from the rest of Scripture. Therefore, it seems important, given the confusion about and corruption of marriage in our society to make his presuppositions explicit. Which brings us to our, our first point. Marriage was created by God. And Paul gets his basic understanding of marriage from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So, so turn with me there. We're going to spend some time there. And I'm, I'm going to read from Genesis 1, chapter one, verse 27 through 28. And then Genesis two, I'm going to start in verse seven, and then I'm going to skip down to to verse 15 into the end of the chapter. So you can listen, or you can turn there with me. The the choice is yours. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male And female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter two, verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. In verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day, you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. The first thing to note from our passages is this. Men and women are both made in the image of God. That's back in verse 27. The theological term is the imago Dei. It just means image of God. This status makes man and woman is part of man, distinct from all the rest of God's creation. Both men and women are God's representatives on earth. You see, you see people are like statues that God has placed in creation to testify about his lordship. But we all bear his image. Both men and women are made in God's image and therefore both men and women are equal in dignity, honor, value, and worth. Both will be tasked with working together to fulfill the creation mandate that we see in chapter 1 and verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. And so we can see the sex of an individual, whether God has made you a man or a woman, does not make you inferior or superior. They're equal in dignity, honor, and worth. However, sex does make men and women different by design. The distinctive features between men and women are woven into the very fabric of our beings by our creator. God intentionally made women different from men. That's our second observation. Sex is not superfluous. Sex is not pointless. God has made you a man or a woman and he's done so on purpose. And he's may, made men and women different on purpose. Friend, if you are here and you're struggling with trying to, to figure out your identity, trying to figure out who you are, and in part of that struggle is uh, feeling as if you are not uh, the sex that God has made you. That your biology doesn't match your mind in some way. I want want you to know a few things. First, God put you in the body that you are in, whether male or female, and he did it on purpose, for a good purpose. You should trust him. You should embrace the way that God has wonderfully made you. That's where you're going to find the most joy and the most satisfaction. Secondly, you cannot, no matter how hard you try or might want to, you you cannot divorce yourself from your DNA. Your biology makes up your body, and no matter what changes you make, it will remain the same. As much as society would like to pretend That you can change this is a reality that cannot be changed, but ought to be embraced. Thirdly, I want you to know that God loves you. and That you are welcome here. Rockfish Valley Baptist Church is, is not a church full of really good people who have their act together. Have never sinned or struggled. This group is a group of struggling sinners who have repented of those sins and found grace and forgiveness and rest and life in Jesus Christ. Jesus, He loves the weak and the weary, the struggling and the sore, the, the hungry and the thirsty. Friend, He can give you strength. He will mend your wounds. He can satisfy you. Listen, your sin, your, your struggle of identity, it's not weird, right? We all struggle with sins in different ways. You, you shouldn't think that you're weird or that no one can understand or that that's a sin that should just shouldn't be talked about. No, no, Jesus deals with, with all kinds of sins. He deals with them all. He forgives them all. And you will fit right in with this lot. We're a bunch of forgiven sinners and you're welcome here. We, we want to love you as God loves you. We want to care for you. We want to encourage you to trust Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus. You can trust him to run your life. He's good at it. He gave his life so that everybody who trusts in him and submits to his lordship can live. Friend, trust Christ this morning and embrace the way God has made you. Sex is not superfluous. God has made men and women differently on purpose for the purpose of bringing himself glory. And part of the way he intends to do that is by filling the earth with human beings, with his image bearers. And that, that's right there in the creation mandate, which he says, be fruitful and multiply. And we recognize that man cannot do this alone. But marriage makes it possible. Sometimes I do think we miss how charming and delightful, just kind of fun the the story is in chapter 2 of you know god bringing adam and eve together it's the first time In the Bible. You know, God's been creating everything. Sin hasn't come into the world yet. He's calling every it's good, it's good, it's good. And for the first time we hear that something is not good. And what's not good is that Adam is alone and he has no complement. He has no corresponding part. He doesn't have a helper fit for him. And then we have this weird scene after we're told it's not good and he can't find a helper fit. Of God parading the animals before Adam as if to say, none of these is fit to be your helper, to be your companion. It's like Adam recognizes it in in my, you know, sanctified imagination as he is naming uh, each animal, you know, hippopotamus, elephant, duck-billed platypus. He's sitting there and he's seeing each of these animals has a a complementary partner. And he's going, really? The, the duck-billed platypus has a partner? Here I am. I'm solo. You know, I'm alone. And you can kind of almost see him like, all right, I've named all the animals. I'm going to have authority and dominion over them. And then just drifting off to sleep and, you know, in his mind, trying to dream of what it would be like to have a complement, to have a helper fit for him. We then have, you know, God performing the unauthorized procedure and then building Eve for Adam. She's not called Eve until after uh, the fall. She's just called woman initially here, right? At any rate, Adam wakes up and you'll notice he doesn't encounter her immediately. Now, I love this in verse, in verse 22. Look, look there. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. As Adam is awake and God just being God, being wonderful, he brings to him this surprise gift. And who doesn't love a good surprise? I mean, back when we used to carry cash, I always it was wonderful when you put on a, a pair of jeans or an old coat, and you'd stick your hands in there, and all of a sudden you'd feel something crumbly, and you pull it out, and there'd be like a $20 bill or a $5 bill. Wow, oh, this is fantastic. What a wonderful surprise. But this is next level surprise, isn't it? God brings him a helper fit for him, his complement, someone to share his life with and to fill the creation mandate with right adam is so enthused he bursts into the first ever love song it's not great in english sure it was lovely in hebrew maybe but but he sings right bone of my bone flesh of my flesh you know along those lines He's recognizing that the woman is like him, but also very different from him in all the right ways. She is a helper fit for him. You know what, what makes her a helper fit? The clues are anatomical. In the verse that uh, Paul quotes in Ephesians 5, he quotes from here, which is this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. The first marriage is a model marriage. From it, we learn that marriage is a miracle in which God makes husband and wife into one. This spiritual reality is portrayed in their physical union. In the act of sex, two different persons become one where they are most different. Love the way C.S. Lewis speaks of it in mere Christianity. He says this when Jesus said that the two would become one flesh, Jesus quotes this passage in Matthew. When Jesus said there were that the two would become one flesh, he was not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact. Just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and its key are one mechanism or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs. Uh, Not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined. In marriage, a man and a woman are made one. Also notice the term translated hold fast there, uh, verse 24 in chapter 2 of Genesis and and verse 32 in chapter 5 of Ephesians, uh, the the Greek word in Ephesians anyhow, uh, and I think it corresponds to the Hebrew one here, uh, could just be rendered uh, shall be bonded. And, And it carries this weight, this literal sense of gluing two objects together. The husband and wife are Fitted for one another, and they're glued together. Their their very lives are uh, stuck. You know, super glue. You know, bonded together here, not to be separated. I always think of that country song. It's not a great song, uh, but but that you know this says I'm stuck on you, uh, stuck like glue. You and me, baby, we're stuck like glue. That's that's the idea here. The two become one. They're fitted together as a lock and a key. The anatomical equipment of the man and the woman is designed to the end of four purposes one, consummation of marriage, two, expressing love, three, pleasure, and four, procreation. We, We see these four purposes serving marriage throughout. The Bible. And so we, we say sex is for consummation of marriage, pleasure within marriage, expressing love within marriage, and the procreation of children within marriage. And it's the purpose of procreation that we want to give a little bit of attention to now. Procreation has always been an essential purpose of sex. Many things make the woman a helper suitable for Adam, but none is more fundamental than her ability to bear fruit together with him. Now, to be clear, a woman's worth is not tied to the children that she has or her ability to have any children at all. We know that we live in a fallen world and that not All who desire children are able to bear them. The scripture is filled with uh, the stories of of barren women, some of whom uh, have miraculous births. It is to be celebrated. It's not your, if you're here and you're a woman, I just want to be clear your worth is not tied to your ability to have children. Okay? Kevin DeYoung writes, We see all sorts of ways women in the Old Testament serve God and save God's people from harm. Yet there is a unique God-given purpose that women find in bearing and caring for children. It's that unique God-given purpose in procreation that is most fundamental to Eve's fittedness for Adam. He is a man. She is a womb man. She's capable of carrying and birthing children. Only together can they obey God's command to subdue the earth and fill it with God's image bearers. Teamwork ultimately makes the dream work, right? It takes both of them. Yes, they are physically different, but they are both made in the image of God. Yes, they have different parts to play, but both is crucial. Both parts are crucial. And so with these these things in mind, We've talked about men and women are made in the image of God, that sex is not superfluous, and that one of the purposes of marriage is, is procreation. I, I want to offer a definition of marriage that um, there are many definitions of marriage out there, but I'm going to offer one that I think is good and it comes from uh, desiring God. This is this marriage is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for their mutual joy, the good of society. And the procreation of children. This definition, which reflects the Bible's understanding of marriage, it's clear, and it rules out some of the ways society has corrupted marriage. And Douglas Wilson enumerates some of the ways and some of the things that it, it rules out in his book, "Reforming Marriage." It says that some facts are obvious as well from the creation ordinance of marriage. Because God has created Adam and Eve, homosexuality is excluded. Because Adam could find no helper for himself among the animals, bestiality is excluded. And because God created just one woman for Adam, polygamy is excluded. The pattern of monogamy is clearly set and displayed to us. Marriage is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for their mutual joy, the good of society, and the procreation of children. That is what marriage is. But what is marriage ultimately for? The glory of God. That marriage is the mechanism through which God determined to fill the earth with his glorious image bearers. And this is what Paul is going to reveal to us. It's always been the case, but he reveals it to us in Ephesians. And marriage is the living drama through which God has chosen to illustrate the relationship between Christ and the church. Which takes us back to Ephesians. I mean, Paul understands what marriage is. He's aware of how God has pictured his relationship with his people in terms of a marriage throughout uh, the Old Testament. And yet what he reveals here in Ephesians is still striking. Right? Speaking of marriage, he teaches us that its end is. To teach us about the relationship between Christ and the church. To teach us about the gospel. And in the flow of his argument, I'm going I'm to read, I think, uh, starting at verse fi- not verse 15, but at verse 22. And, and I want you to, to recognize how he roots all of these commands in Christ's actions. And then ultimately says that these this relationship, this marriage relationship, points to Christ's And the church. And then specifically, he's going to be encouraging the husband to love his wife, and he's going to provide uh, the explanation for why he should love his wife as his own body. He's going to say, because this is how Christ loves the church. All right, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the, ter- and the church. Two things we need to grasp here, and we've hinted at both of them already. First, marriage is patterned after the relationship between Christ and the church. This is revolutionary. Th- this means that when God designed marriage in eternity past, He had the relationship between Christ and the church. In mind. When Paul says this mystery is profound, he's not saying this is some unsolvable 2020 mystery. We don't understand anything about it. He, no, he's using the word like he's used it throughout Ephesians. He's saying this is something that was once hidden from view, but now has been revealed by God. Marriage, it turns out, has always been about reflecting the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage, has always been about the gospel. God planned it that way. And so all the instructions that we have about marriage and all that we will talk about over the next couple weeks, all of it only makes sense and can be understood in light of the relationship between Christ and his church. Marriage is patterned after the relationship between Christ and the church. Secondly, marriage pictures the relationship between Jesus and the church. This this is truly incredible. Marriage prophesied the coming of the gospel in some ways, and now it pictures the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. As husbands and wives love one another, we are teaching one another and others about God's covenant love marriage is built on a covenant a covenant is you know a promise it's a promise of future love you know no matter what when it in marriage so we need to ask ourselves i think immediately how is my love for my spouse. The love that Jesus has for his bride burns ever hot. It does not waver, and it is through, it's true, through betrayal and unto death. Friends, God set his love on his people. Before time began, before the foundation of the world, he chose those who would have faith to be the bride of his son. That same bride fell into sin and death, was imprisoned by a terrible foe. And so God the Son took on flesh and came and freed his bride from the dungeon and the dragon alike at the expense of his life. He bled out so that she church could be forgiven from sin, could live and could be free. It's so not the end of the story, though. We, we know that, that the hero of history was raised from the dead to the right hand of God from where he rules and reigns. We know that one day he will return to finish what he started, and to vanquish our great foe once and for all. The Bible is a love story. Believer, the gospel is your love story. You, all of us, were the the damsel in distress and Christ came for us. He knew us and he tracked us down and made us his own. He saved us. He's saved you, brother Christian. He's came and died and rescued you, sister Christian. He died so your sins might be forgiven, and he rose so you might be free from death. The gospel story is a love story, and it's your story, believer. Unbeliever, this love story, this good news, can be yours. If you will turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. Jesus loves you and welcomes you. He will not cast out anyone who comes to him in faith. Come to him. You can be united to Jesus and his people. You can be free from sin. You can have hope even in death, knowing that all who trust in Christ will be raised from the dead as he himself was raised. You can have the certainty of eternity together with God and his people. Believe. Believe. Human marriages illustrate the love Christ has for his people and his his union with them. Just as the first Adam was joined to his wife, becoming one flesh with her, so too is the last Adam, Jesus, joined to his bride, so she, the church, might become one with him. Marriage, friends, is a gospel drama. It's an acting out of the gospel story. The whole enterprise of marriage is a parable aimed at teaching about Jesus, Just as flowers stand in as a symbol for love, signatures for promises or fireworks for celebrations, marriage is all about God and his enduring promises to us. (laughs) Marriage is far more glorious than anyone tends to think. It is no social construct, but a creation of God. It is not a cage that stifles evolutionary sexual impulses, but the arena in which sexuality is designed to flourish. Marriage is not an institution dedicated to my happiness or your happiness. Rather, it is an institution dedicated to displaying the glory of God in the gospel. Singles, the Bible's teaching on marriage is for you. It's to help you see Christ. It's to help you look to Christ. Married, The Bible's teaching on marriage is for you. It's to help you see Christ. It is to help you look to Christ. Some of you spend so much time working on yourself, working on your marriage, that you never look to Christ, which is the real problem at the bottom of it all. You keep expecting your spouse to fully satisfy you when only Jesus can do that. But instead of looking to Jesus, you look for 10 ways to be a better husband, six ways to be a better wife. And you try and you grind but you always have your eyes on yourself or on your spouse and never on your savior. And that's the problem. The whole enterprise of marriage is intended to cause you to look to Christ. Imagine that you and your spouse are both really into bicycling. And you, you, you are riding along and, uh, you know, it's a beautiful day, blue sky, uh, wind in your hair. Maybe you have uh, your old school and you want your bicycle to sound like a motorcycle and so you, you stuck like a trading card back there in the back wheel. But you're riding along because you're so into each other. You turn Side by side, riding down the road. Turn, and you just lock eyes romantically. Not gonna take your eyes off one another. You're just so into each other. So in love. So focused on one another. Well what? What's gonna happen as you continue to pedal? Inevitably, you're going to crash. This is what happens to our marriages when we focus on ourselves instead of Christ. If we want more faithful marriages, we'll ride closely to one another. Yes, yes. But our eyes will be front-facing and focused on Jesus Marriage is about Jesus and his relationship with his people. In concluding, let's be clear about what marriage is and what marriage is for. Marriage is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for their mutual joy, the good of society, and the procreation of children. And marriage is for glorifying God. Marriage is a gospel drama depicting Jesus' love for and union with his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for marriage. We thank you for your word. We thank you for creating us male and female in your image Creating us with a purpose to fill the earth with your glory, with worshipers. So many of us who are parents endeavor to do that by raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, by training them to follow you. And our prayer is that, that all of our children would indeed come to know Christ as Savior. We also fulfill this great commission all of us as the church by making disciples of all nations, by evangelizing. And so we pray that you would put a spirit of evangelism into each and every member of Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, that you would help us to be so committed to the truth and so committed to loving our neighbors that we would wisely share with them the good news of Christ crucified for sins and raised for justification, that we would winsomely call for those who do not know Jesus to put their faith in him. Lord, we pray that as we study Ephesians 5 over the next couple of weeks, that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly in marriage. Pray, yes, that you would make us better husbands and better wives, but we think that the way to to do that is by helping us to become better lovers of God. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to love you more by setting our eyes on Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.